First Impressioners, we're back. I am Kristen, and I am joined by Maggie. Hi. Hi. And this is First Impressions, the podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all the haters. And I am excited that we are going to talk today about another Emma adaptation. It's like we just needed to get all the Emma adaptations out and into the world and talked about. And since we already did uh, the Rome Ligurai, we did not want to forget the 1996 Weirdly enough, a second version of Emma came out in 1996. This is not the Douglas McGrath. This is the Andrew Davies version with Kate Beckinsale. How weird is it that this was an Andrew Davies? I know. I didn't even know. I remembered yeah. seeing it I, I, for once, once a long time ago. I had seen it, you know, because I was like, wow, there's another adaptation of Emma. And I, I missed that it was by Andrew Davies. I didn't even realize it until I was watching the credits of this uh, again. And I was blown away. And I did what I probably, what I wish I could have done had I had more time and energy and, you know, ability to invest myself into podcast stuff, um, which is hard because I'm in school and working, learning a new job and everything. But what I did was I looked, because I was so curious about Davies in particular, that I looked up some interviews with him from 1996, 97-ish where he talks about this adaptation. And there are some fascinating things, some choices that he made that when you're watching the movie, you're like, this is really weird. I wonder why they made these choices. And then he explained them in the interview that I read. And now I'm like, whoa, totally blown away. And I'm excited to talk about some of these oh, weird things. Oh, cool. I'll have one or check that out too. Yes. Um, so, and this was just this morning. I was like, I'm sure there's an interview and I found it. So sorry, don't feel bad that you, I didn't send it to you because I, Literally just discovered it. I promise I don't feel bad. Okay, good. <laughs> um, I'm always worried everybody's being mad at me. It's a like defining feature of my um, personality. So I mean, eighty percent of the time, <laughs> I'm probably mad at you. <laughs> I'm just Something. Fanny Price. No. <laughs> Fanny, my soul is Fanny Price's soul. Uh, no. How can anyone be mad at Kristen? Oh, easily. So would you like to talk about your overall thoughts before we get into the nitty gritty? Sure. So I watched it more than once. The first time I was not impressed. I liked it better the second time because I think I could just kind of dig more into it once I kind of knew where it was going. I did not like how Emma was portrayed. I think Kate Beckinsale is a great actress. I think she did a great job. I think that for most of this, Emma's just a bitch. <laughs> and then it's like, all of a sudden at the end, she's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be a horrible person. And <laughs> that's the revelation, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought that the pacing of it was off. The beginning rushes by and then the, oh God, it drags for like an hour and 20 minutes in what I presume is the middle. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There were some weird choices. I guess I could say I liked certain parts of it and certain things that were done. But for the most part, it was just kind of like, why? What are they doing? Um, Overall, two very th two things that stuck out to me as very weird choices was one that we really do not see Knightley and Emma together, except for very right at the beginning. We never really see them together in an atmosphere that feels loving, that feels like they're joking around or that they're friends. We only see them in a contentious sort of he's being disdainful or he's being hard on her. 
And really, we don't even get a lot of sexuality between them, which is so surprising because it's Davies. And number one is what he loves to inject sex, you know, and he's not wrong. Sex is all around us in Austin. But the second thing I thought was even uh, stranger as a storytelling choice is that Harriet, who really is the emotional roller coaster of this novel, they cut out so many parts about Harriet's feelings about her. She's just pleasant all the time. She's like, just a nice girl who's pleasant. There's none of this like, oh God, I'm in love with all these people. It's just like, oh, yeah. she's very nice. Well, the number one thing that's weird is that Emma never really has to suffer because Harriet is suffering. Because yeah. we never see, except for one quick shot of maybe her looking a little teary-eyed when Elton gets engaged. We don't see her mooning over Elton. We don't see her constantly talking about Elton. We don't see her. But um, I mean, I don't want to give a my, you know, anything away too soon, but they cut, for example, they cut the thing where Elton drops the courtship uh, riddle and Harriet is saying, oh, or um, Emma is saying, oh, Harriet, he's writing to us about courtship. He must really love you. And Harriet, by degree, is getting more excited and more excited and more believing that Elton loves her because yeah. Emma's saying, this is what it means. This is what it means. They cut sort of all of that. And in fact, um, the proposal from Robert Martin to Harriet happens within the first 15 minutes of the whole thing, right? And so we do not see Emma building Harriet up into loving Elton. We just get a few little hints of that. The second thing they dropped is that after Harriet is rescued by Frank Churchill, um, she's supposed to be at Emma's house because she wants to burn the court plaster mm. and the little trinkets. They cut that out as well. And that was the moment when we were supposed to finally feel like, oh, thank God, Harriet's finally over Elton. Emma doesn't have to feel racking guilt anymore. But we don't need that because Emma isn't feeling, isn't racked with guilt. She has one scene where Harriet's sad and Harriet's like, no, it's okay. And then, yeah. and then Kate Beckinsale's like, well, if you forgive me, then I'm not entirely yeah, cast I'm down. And then it goes on. And then it's never thought of again, right? And so we as an audience are supposed to be invested in Harriet, um, in, in her loss, in her emotional you know, devastation. And we re really never get that. So that when, when the rug gets pulled out from under Harriet, with um, with Frank Churchill, who Emma thinks she loves, and then with Knightley, who who Harriet really loves, there are these funny scenes where Emma's like, "Oh Lord, Harriet," but we're never really worried. And yeah. then when she has to go tell Harriet about Knightley, the first thing Harriet does is run up and say, "Hey, guess what? I'm engaged to Robert Martin." She never, Emma never yeah. has to suffer not one little bit for her bad choices there with regard to Harriet which I just thought was a very weird choice overall. Well, it also ends up robbing the comedy of errors yeah. moment where Emma thinks she's talking about Frank Churchill and she's talking about Knightley and they never actually say the name because what happens is Knightley dancing with Harriet happens like 30 minutes before. Yeah. So it, everything is so far removed in terms of when the misunderstanding occurred, like I, and I even know the plot <laughs> and I was still kind of like, I don't, this conversation doesn't really make any sense where there, she's just like in love with someone else. And it's supposed to be this big comedic moment yeah. of misunderstanding. Oh, and no, another wacky misunderstanding has occurred. Yeah. And it's just kind of, I don't know. I feel like Samantha Morton did a really nice job of Harriet of making her just a really pleasant 
Oh, I loved her portrayal. Yeah. And I usually find Harriet really annoying. And maybe the problem though, is that if you take away the things that make Harriet annoying, you just don't have much of a character. Um, I thought that almost, I thought that everybody's the secondary character. Sorry. Now I'm just like going to randomly spew thoughts. All of the secondary characters I thought were so great. I loved Jane Fairfax in this. Like I felt like this is probably the version we've seen on film that actually did the best with Jane Fairfax. And maybe it's just because the actress is really good, but you get all those moments that kind of the other ones left off, like when she storms out of the strawberry picking and she's like, I just want to be alone. You just kind of really see her suffering with her options. You don't really know why yet, but she's really upset about being a governess. She never gets her own agency and you can really see her kind of misery with that. I and think I really appreciated that. Yeah, it was nice to see. It was nice to see a more fleshed out, restrained. She you can see that she's a passionate woman, but that she is being restrained. She's not just naturally reserved like Emma keeps. She, Emma, who is a bad judge of character, keeps saying, "Oh, yeah, you know, you, one can never love a reserved person." Well, Frank says that, but I think that they sacrificed the Harriet subplot in order to spend more time with the psychodrama of Frank and Jane. So I think you're right. And I really, uh, okay, let me think. I have mixed feelings about this. The guy who played Frank Churchill, I really liked. And I have to say, the whole time I was watching this movie, I was just like, oh my God, that's so-and-so from this other thing because it's the 90s. <laughs> so I text Kristen. I'm like, uh, Frank, Churchill is def- Frank Churchill is definitely young Ebenezer Scrooge in The Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh you're my welcome. I, my mind was blown. I mean, you like are the like- only thing I recognize that guy from. <laughs> a savant. Like, oh my God, it's amazing that you made that but- connection because he has like two scenes in The Muppet Christmas Carol, which I- by the way, <laughs> can we just stop this entire ride and get off and talk about how much we can we just record a Muppet Christmas Carol podcast uh, because I watch that I watch that movie every year and so I'm like oh yeah we watch it every year too oh my gosh it's, it's actually one of the best a Christmas Carol adaptations oh, there the is best. it's by far the best it's by far the best oh my god oh my god isn't this a little scary for the kids nah it's culture oh yeah. my god <laughs> maybe we can do a, maybe we'll do a special holiday episode oh god, where instead of Jane Austen and we talk about Charles Dickens. Love, have the brilliance <laughs> of that adaptation. Talk about good adaptations, fellas. Right? Talk right? about okay. brilliance. Okay, I'm getting back on. Okay, let's get back on the ride. Okay, so um, I thought he did great because he's a total asshole. And the stuff with him and Emma, I thought, was great. It's probably the best version of it I've seen where he kind of like brings out the worst in her. Yeah. On the other hand, there was a lot of it, and it just kind of drags that whole section of the movie. That's what Kevin was saying too. It feels very airless. When Kevin Kevin was, of course, on the couch on his phone and like half absorbing it, but he looked up and he's like, you know, this is really the least fun part of Emma that we yeah. get sucked into his orbit. And the other thing about it too, with the psychodrama, and this is what Davies actually intended, but you get the the utter cruelty of Frank in how far he takes the game and how, what mean, mean things he says about Jane Fairfax. Oh, her hair is so outre. And this is all from the book. You know, he doesn't have to. He doesn't like her complexion. Yeah. But so then, but because of that, I think, I'm not going to say it's worth it because it's just, it's a lot of one note where it's just like Frank and Emma being mean girls. Right. Yeah. Um, When you get the end, when Knightley is like, 
So he comes in here, he treats everyone <laughs> like garbage, and everyone is completely happy to forgive him. And his aunt, he can't get it married the woman he loves because if it's not, his aunt dies. He becomes a millionaire. Everyone forgives <laughs> him. He gets the woman he wants. And it's just kind of, I don't remember if that is in the book, but it's kind yes. of like nightly calls out Jane Austen. <laughs> yes, and it feels very real. You're angrier towards Frank Churchill in this adaptation than you ever are in any other one. And I think the sacrifice of Harriet and Emma's matchmaking ridiculousness with Harriet, we still see her ridiculousness because she is in this version, as in the book, the one who brings up the fact that Jane Fairfax could be in love with Mr. Dixon. And then of course, Frank runs with it in the most cruel way. Yeah. Actually, they needle her. He needles her all the time about, oh, is it an Irish melody? And then with the letters, which they kept in. Yeah, which I liked actually with the Dixon mixed up. Yeah, yeah. Up when down. Frank gives Dixon, the word Dixon to Emma in the letters, um, she actually looks at it and she laughs and she's like, no, for shame, I don't want it. And uh, Jane Fairfax is right there. Then they give it to her. And it's like the most overt bullying you yeah. can imagine. And and this is where Emma's matchmaking horribleness uh, actually does come back to bite her in that she's wrong about her supposition. And then in that her supposition goes on to extremely embarrass her when the truth comes all out because yeah. she was acting like a mean girl and she should be ashamed of it. But also because she was so wrong once again uh, in her matchmaking attempts. I do think, however, that it's very hard to forgive Frank after the truth comes out there's that very short scene during the like harvest slash wedding reception. Like, I don't know what's going on yes. where he comes up to her and he apologizes. And then he just like goes on about how wonderful Jane is. And I think as an audience member and Emma, he is so charming that we do kind of forgive him. And me, he and Jane are both happy. It looks like. Yeah. So. It does look like that. But let me tell you Davies's take on Frank oh. Churchill. This is he like he's way. a psychotic jackass? No, it's that he he actually is a very damaged child and takes it out on the women around him. So he oh, never okay. forgave his mother for dying. He had to be sent away his from the aunt. Home. Is, probably yes, his crazy. aunt is yes a, a huge pill. He has to suffer from her all the time, and because and he uh, Davies feels that he is passionately in love with Jane but resents Jane for being withholding, even though she sort of has to be. So takes that out he, in genuine anger at her when mm -hmm. he is saying these mean things and when he is bullying her with Dixon. Um, that he thinks there's like love there, but also a genuine hurt there that he's taking out on her and also believes that he's being creepy. In the At the Harvest Dinner, there's this scene, right, where... Frank is um, standing next to Emma and just talking about his intense sexual love for Jane Fairfax. <laughs> oh, her skin, oh, her cheek. She can hear us. And it's almost like a little bit of foreplay in the way that he's saying these physical things about her and like, she can hear me. I know she can hear me. And then he goes to her and she smiles and she's happy because she has the passionate love. She really feels for him. But if you notice when he leaves, Emma makes this face like, oh, this is disgusting. And genuine disgust at his behavior. She's been pulled into their weird fascination with each other in a way that she is uncomfortable with. 
I think a lot of that is Emma just being a bitch. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I know I don't want to like, I, but she just is in this. Like, it's really hard to like her. And I'll tell you the moment they lost me. It was when they run in, when she and Harriet are walking in the woods and they run into Robert Barton. And Emma goes, oh, I'll wait for you over there, Harriet. Like, come find me when you're done so that they can talk. She walks right past Robert Martin and does not, he bows to her and she does not recognize him in any way until she's past him. And then she looks back and looks annoyed. I thought that was so rude. It just, it's Emma is totally rude and in utter contrast, by the way, and I know we talked about this, of Knightley, the moral touchstone of the story. What distinguishes Knightley in this version? Knightley's character in this, we talked a bit about him a couple days ago. It's very interesting because he, of course, is like the man of the people in this, right? Yes. Class-wise, he Mm -hmm. is interested in the lower classes. He cares about them as people. In the first scene when he comes in, he says, oh, hello, Thomas. How is your family? Now, Thomas is the butler. In the rest of the scenes that involve, you know, all the other peeps, they're treated like butlers and so on, servants. They're treated as furniture. I mean, Yeah, when they're looking at the picture that Emma has painted, I don't know if you noticed, but one of the servants just moves the candles in front so they can see it. And nobody even like recognizes that that that's happening. When they go to pick strawberries and um, Mrs. Elton and Miss Bates are having their conversation, they do this very obviously funny thing where they're like, oh, we're picking strawberries like shepherdesses. And then they look over to the footman who move the pillow that they're using to kneel yeah. on <laughs> and yeah. like, you know, and the, so they have to, they have to put forward no effort. Another funny thing. I don't know if you noticed that in the beginning when Elton says to Harriet Smith, Oh, let me help you to a bit of apple tart. It's already cut, put on a plate, the servant yeah. hands it to him and then he hands it to Harriet. So I was like, I see it's, what you're doing with this, Andrew Davies. It, it's a he made it very clear with just a couple touches, kind of like the world these people live in and how they're, just disconnected, like what the difference between the classes, you know, when they're traveling through the town, you get a clear shot of like a bunch of poor people in like raggedy clothes, like trying to do like their laundry or whatever. Um, When they're going to Box Hill, there's like this really effective shot of all the servants who actually have to lug all the shit up the hill for them for their picnic. Right. Um, I actually like those moments. Unlike the Emma with Gwyneth, you know, where they just show her like sitting under a beautiful tent sketching at some point, this one makes clear like, no, people are doing all of this stuff for them. Like that tent doesn't just magically appear. Right. There's people in the background who work really hard. And I think that all of that kind of came across out because Andrew Davies wanted to make this Knightley's character. And it makes some of the decisions he makes throughout the novel make more sense. Like when Emma teases him about, you know, you never take a carriage, you always ride your horse. In this case, it's probably because he doesn't feel the need to like inconvenience all these people to pull out his <laughs> carriage and drive him there. Like I'm perfectly capable of riding my horse. And when he's talking about how he wants to do all the setup for his party, it's like, no, he's very independent. Oh, he can I'll do, do that. He doesn't yes. need to have other people do things for him and his costumes as well are uh, not shabby per se, but he wears the same coat almost entirely through the entire movie. He is not as ostentatious. And then clearly when they have their harvest 
and he invites all of his tenants and stuff like that. He's definitely supposed to be seen as like a friendly overseer, landowner. Yes, he genuinely cares. And another, and uh, you know, about Robert Martin and yeah, his the fight with Robert Martin too. Like he really likes Robert Martin. And he that talks reaps, to him. He yeah. knows him. And that reaps benefits. I don't know. There's one line when they're at the end of the movie, they're bringing in the harvest and Robert Martin's like, best harvest ever, sir. And you know that they're like working hard for him because he cares. Another thing that is brought into the same theme more subtly is that this scene between Knightley and Emma is different than the other two in that what you get from Knightley is a genuine sorrow for the ruination of Harriet's prospects mm-hmm. rather than saying you will retro meddling Emma or rather than being like better be without sense than misapplied as you do Emma like the other two adaptations we talked about what he says is you have been no friend to Harriet Smith and the emphasis is on why why this is terrible for Harriet because he genuinely cares about people including Harriet um, you know of course which is also shown by the fact that he dances with her yeah. You know, I, you, I really liked all of those decisions with his character. I, I don't think they're really in the book, um, but I think they work really well in the film. But yeah. there are, part, continuing on with Knightley, there are things he does that I did not like. And oh, I know you kind of feel this way, same way. Uh, you don't need to make badly done Emma a catchphrase. Oh, no. It was <laughs> a terrible decision. Oh, man. Oh, God. Is it in the first time he's chastising her about Robert Martin and Harriet Smith? He says, badly done. Totally takes the wind out of it and totally yeah, takes I, the I punch out of it. I completely agree. It was so dumb. I, I was just looking at it. I'm like, why? Oh. It's not, he's not like a, did I do that? Oh, my like, God. It's so funny that you said, did I do that? Because I was about to bust out that same line. <laughs> what? Oh my God! No, I was gonna say when when Emma goes to Harriet, and instead of being like, "I'm so sorry, Harriet," she pulls it. Did I do that? Like, yes, she feels no remorse. But anyway, and oh my God, it's so weird that you also busted out. Okay, continue. Or she looks at the camera and she's like, "Dynamite!" Like it's like, <laughs> oh, don't need to have a catch. The uh, I know that you had an issue with. He seems a lot angrier in a lot of the, like the haircut. <laughs> the haircut, he really goes off and he's like, I postponed my business, which of course is not in the book. And no, like, you, okay, go on. I, I didn't mean to interrupt your point. Uh, I guess the last thing I had an issue, I think the good outweighs the bad for Knightley. But the last thing I had an issue with was Knightley. Piece of <laughs> advice from media. You're chatting with the girl that you've, I guess, had been in love with through the entire movie, right? We're supposed to think he's been in love with her for a while. I would recommend that you not keep mentioning that you knew her when she was a baby. I held you in my arms. He keeps saying that, and it's creepy. Or it the, is, it's creepy. This brother, sister. I'm like, why are you making it creepy? Don't do uh, it. Just, yes. just stop. Stop. Nope. No, you have to say that she right before he kisses her, he talks about know, holding her as a baby. The proposal scene and oh. I, I, the proposal scene did not move, oh. did not move me the first two times I watched it, but the third time I was swept up in his love for her. I genuinely thought the proposal was romantic, and then he drops that line. Yes, I held you in my arms, and she says, "Do you like me as well now as you it's did gross. then?" It's like un- really unfortunate, um, you know, echoes of what that, it, it, obviously he's not a pedophile, but bringing that idea even into this conversation is unsexy. Yeah, no, and I agree. I thought, so I thought the proposal scene was very moving um, until, that, until that. And then it's, it's just like, you don't need to point out that huge age difference. It's just not hot. 
And then they do the same thing with the brother and sister line, which is fine at the dance at the crown, but then at the harvest dance at the very end where he asks her to dance, we are not so much brother and sister. No, you're married. Yeah, Why are no, you being they're, creepy? they're not married. They're like engaged. They oh, okay. I don't think they got married yet. But anyway, yeah, no, it's it's creepy. And um, they lost a lot of opportunity to bring um, their their attraction to each other into it. He even um, says to her bluntly and without any joking tone, like like when Gwyneth and Jeremy Northam get together and they talk about how well Jane sings, uh, they make it a joke where Jeremy Northam is like, well, your singing was lovely. Oh, it was very elegant. And, and, they, and they laugh. But Knightley in this version, um, she says, you never heard anything like Jane from me. And he was like, as you yeah. said. And it's not joking around. It's just flat mean. And the other thing he does that is so gauche, that is not gentlemanly at all. It, it really bothers me when an adaptation yeah. is like, oh, Knightley is so most genteel man in the neighborhood. He's so genteel, Harriet. You could never, you know. And then he, he, he does all these very gauche things. Knightley in this version is in front of Mr. Weston both times that he decides to criticize Frank Churchill. And we know from Mr. Weston in the book that Frank is his ever, his pride and joy and absolutely loves him. And he would be genuinely hurt to hear any criticism of Frank. Um, but nightly at a table full of all these people at dinner is like, Frank Churchill should have come, he, you know, say it plainly, ma'am, you know, he should have visited you. And, and it's like, pull it on back. You know, he would never have said something like that in the book because that's just, it's just confrontational and not genteel in any way. Yeah. And we talked about how, one of Knightley's big moments is of kindness. You know, he sees that Mr. Woodhouse is upset about the snow at the Christmas party and he arranges to have the carriage already yeah. ready. They cut that. It's nowhere in there. They cut a lot of his humanity and his his caring about Mr. Woodhouse. Yeah. Oh, but I mean, he says hi to Thomas, the butler. So, yeah, I, so we know I, mean, I don't back. see why you couldn't have both. You can still be a gentleman and care about the people who work for you. I don't really see why we have to kind of make him rude. Yeah. Maybe I guess Andrew Dave, I mean, you're the one who read the interview, but maybe he's like, well, he's just like, he's always honest. He's kind of like a brutally honest person. And sometimes he doesn't notice of who he's talking to. I don't know. Well, and I mean, there is a little bit of that in the interview where he's just saying the English upper classes, you know, lived with their tenants and their laborers. And we wanted to show Knightley as being, as having enlightened management, but he doesn't really talk too, too, too terribly much about that. But, um, you know, one of the things that, I mean, Davies did really mean this as a social commentary. I mean, he kept in the um, Roma, you know, people who accost Harriet Smith. Mm -hmm. He he also, I don't know if you noticed, but the the he he decided to show the robbery of Hartfield and the chickens. Not that only so being, dumb. Well, not only being robbed in the beginning to show the need of the lower classes and how they're not doing great. But also at the end, um, to show English social change still has to come, I believe was his. Okay, I did not get that from that at all. No. And, and another thing he wanted to do that they would not let him do is that he wanted to have Emma and, and Knightley married, sleeping together at Hartfield. The chicken coop is robbed again. Emma gets up. And she says, oh, the chicken coop has been robbed. And he's like, come here, my dear. And she goes into his arms. And it, the rooster was going to go, cock-a-doodle-doo. And everybody was like, Andrew, that is in very poor taste. You, you cannot put that in. Well, that's what happens in the beginning. But I just remember hitting play, watching this, and it opens with, like, 
people robbing chickens. I'm like, what am I watching? And then what? Emma gets up and she stands at the window very, very static. Like, oh, hmm. She just looks annoyed. Uh, whatever. What does this have to do with anything? Yeah. No, it's, social, it's meant to be social commentary. Oh, okay, she doesn't well, care. I she did not care get about that. the lower classes and their need. And she's just like, whatever. It's just different. It's not even in her social. It's not even in her mental orbit of what's going on around her. Whereas Knightley really is. And that that's his maturity. And um, just, I, it's just, it's done while sacrificing any indication that he is interested in her. So that at the end, it really comes like what? Yes. And you don't have any pleasure in the middle of the, of the movie in seeing them moving towards intimacy or feeling, Oh, wouldn't it be great if they got together? In fact, at the dance. Yes. I- yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. I know what you're going to say. I was going to say this too. <laughs> When Knightley dances with Harriet, we get many scenes of that. When then Knightley and Emma dance, we do not even get to see them dancing, which would have been a real opportunity for them to show intimacy and smiles at each other and closeness and the fact that she's happy with him for for rescuing Harriet. We don't get to see any of that. I remember you and I, when we were discussing Emma as the novel, had a big conversation about how the dance is a turning point and how Emma sees Knightley where it's the first time she kind of does see him as a like sexual man who is like a potential has not a potential partner because that's too far, but she just sees a different side of him as someone who is kind of romantic. Yeah. Um, Upright. There's nothing nothing like that. No, we don't, we don't get that. It's a real missed opportunity, especially for someone like Davies who um, really likes to give us that sexual commentary. I'm wondering if maybe most of their interactions being in conflict, Knightley and Emma, most of their interactions are them in conflict. Maybe if that's a note because Pride and Prejudice had come out the year before and was so successful Uh and people were really into the like, you know, boy and girl meet, boy and girl hate each other (laughs) and then boy and girl fall in love. Maybe they were trying to replicate that type of relationship. But the you problem know, is Knightley and Emma have known each other since she was a baby, as he right, keeps reminding right. us. Everyone keeps reminding us. So you you don't really, you, they don't have that type of relationship. I wrote down in my notes, uh, the very first scene with Knightley and Emma together, I wrote down, they have great chemistry, this crackles, this is going to be great. Because when he comes in and he's talking about the wedding, who cried? Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, he, you know, uh, one of us, us is such a fanciful, troublesome creature. They have great chemistry. He's smiling and he has a very sexy little smile. I, you know, like a little half, half smile. And I'm like, this is sexy. You know, they mm-hmm. have great chemistry. It crackles. And we always say what we like to one another. And then it's totally lost. He never even really gets to smile again. You know, throughout most of the movie, he's just angry. Yeah, and I thought Mark Strong did a really good job with what he has. I love Mark Strong. I'm not sure I necessarily see him as, like, the romantic leading man type. Um, But I think he's a great actor. And I thought he did as good a job as he could with this character who was kind of altered a lot. Except for the haircut, which he just played being way too mad. But I mean, you know, they just do multiple takes. You give the directors multiple things and then they just pick what they like. Sometimes actors have these eyebrows that kind of do half the work for them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying Mark Strong is a bad actor. He's great. But he's certainly helped by sort of this heavy brow. Yeah. You know, it would have been nice to see him counteract that um, natural gravity a little bit. Yeah, I looked at his eyes a lot during this performance. He's got big green eyes. And I was 
looking at his his he's he has a very kind of like piercing gaze type of thing going which is why he plays villains so well and i actually always had him as kind of like my mental severus snape oh that's funny yeah he does seem a lot like that and um if you've ever seen um stardust he plays a character who looks very much like a snape kind of character he has um, the ability too to do the darcy style smoldering brooding he just didn't get to do it. Okay, but let's talk some more about some of the other characters. Uh, we have not yet talked about the Eltons, and I have feelings that <laughs> need to be shared. Please. Um, so I thought interesting choices. One, Mr. Elton, before he marries Augusta, it's just kind of like a dude. Like, he's not a bad dude. They make him kind of creepier in both of the other versions we watched. He seems like just kind of a guy who happens to have a crush on Emma. And honestly, this was the first adaptation I've seen where when he's like, you were giving me signals where I was like, you know, yeah, she was actually. <laughs> yeah. Kind of get, there's a, they actually did do the comedy of errors thing in this version with him and her, I thought better where they do shoot each other little glances. She thinks it's because of Harriet. I don't know. To me, he just seemed like a, ni- like a nice guy. He didn't seem like a a-hole or anything like that. I think it's her rejection of him that really like kind of makes him hate her. He, he is kind of smarmy with the whole picture thing, but there's no real indication at all that he's doing it for Harriet. He's praising Emma. He's looking at Emma and is smiling at him and is looking at him. And so, yeah, like you said, Maggie, when he does propose, you really feel bad for him. Yeah, like it's very clear. Like I was like, yeah, it's legit. You guys yeah. were having some moments. <laughs> and, I remember, and you texted me and you're like, you know, I, I, I feel bad for him. This is not how I'm supposed to feel. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Elton, I feel like you're supposed, you're supposed to know from the beginning, like, oh, God, no, like Elton oh, and Harriet would be awful. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so slimy and, you know, ingratiating and he doesn't really seem that way uh, mm-hmm. not enough for us to dislike him. Certainly, even when he, you know, even when he brings Augusta back. Uh, I like your pronunciation of Augusta. Augusta, Augusta <laughs> group. Okay, Augusta. But, <laughs> but we have to mention... Holy shit, Mrs. Elton is Mrs. Hurst. Yes, she's Louisa Hurst, and she comes back in this to be Mrs. Elton. My mind was blown. I think I also texted you, like, is Mrs. Hurst Mrs. Elton? And you're like, y'all, with more Um, lines in her first scene than she ever had. All of Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, let's talk about the, the choice to do the accent. Uh, I think it's supposed, you know, it's that. Northern manufacturing family, yeah, new money. I was uh, they're tr- definitely making her seem like she's like, um, sort of. I'm looking for ill mannered, new money. Yes, yeah, like pert, and yes. um, coming in and trying to parade around and be the queen bee while having some of these uh unpolished rough edges and i don't know if it was considered like lower class to have this northern but the r's are r's are very hard 
And um, I was trying to look, I was trying to look up more information. What is this accent? Why was she doing it? How did she figure out, you know, that this was it? all I could. And I only spent 15 minutes, y'all. I, I, I'm sorry. I had so much homework, but um, all I got on YouTube was um, Mancunian accents, like t- mm-hmm. tutorials for how to do it. And got, I have to say, this is a tangent. Love the Mancunian accent. I, but, you know, the normal British way to pronounce water, for example, is the T. The T is there. The T is correct. It is the T sound in the English language. Americans are are, are very more lazy. We don't want to go to the trouble of enunciating T. So we just say water with a D, which is yeah. easier. It, you know, we don't have time for this crap, right? Mancunians have really figured it out because they're just going to drop the con- water. They're not going to be bothered. They don't have time for these consonants. And I, they don't, they don't, you know, they drop the ing at the end of things. I am charmed. I like these people have figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was, I was dying, but no, to bring it back, I could not figure out, uh, I did not learn rather where this, you know, where this came from. Maybe she just knew what the Northern accent was supposed to be like at that time, but it, it is effective in making her seem harsh. Yes, and it it separates her from everyone else, which is clearly the intent. Um, I mean, it's not like a Yorkshire Northern Act. Like, it's uh, imagine Sean Bean or people who are from um, the North in Game of Thrones, right? Like, that's a very calm. That's what I think of when I think of a Northern accent. Um, yeah, and this, having this lived like, in the UK, you you have a a good. Um, sort of frame of reference for that. This was something where I was, it was weird, but it was a clearly just meant to kind of make her less polished than yeah. it, like clearly. And, and you know, so it was very effective in that. And I thought they, two of them together did a great job. Um, the Eltons were very, yeah, yeah, just yeah. as they are in the book, they're just supposed to be like, uh, I don't know. They're so, they're such great characters. There's so much to dig into with them, like puffing themselves up, thinking they're better, but still always seeking approval from everyone and inserting themselves. And they're, it, it's fun. They're fun. Yeah. Um. It, one of the things that Davy says, which rings so true for me, and I wouldn't have thought to put it this way, is that Miss, one of the reasons that Mrs. Elton gets under Emma's skin so badly is that Mrs. Elton comes in and she wants to be the Emma of the neighborhood. She yeah. wants to run everybody's life. She wants to get all these young women's lives settled with, you know, Jane, and I'm going to get you a position. And it's just, they have clashing roles. And um, at the at the big picnic um, on Box Hill, which we're going to talk about, one of the things, one of the lines she has is, well, uh, young women did not order married ladies around. Mm-hmm. When I was and sort of asserting that new stature that she has in the neighborhood as the new bride, even and this is in the book, it's not really in the movie, but even in the the when they open the ball, um, the Westons are so sad to tell Emma, like, I'm sorry, Mrs. Elton has to open the ball. Yeah. And you know, bride visits have to be paid and all this stuff, and it's um it's irksome. <laughs> you could have I mean, I could see a version of Emma, which is actually about. Mrs. Elton, <laughs> where, no, I mean, like, that is kind of the complication of the plot, and then everyone reacting, you know, it's the classic, yeah, yeah. there's only five plots, and one of them is a stranger comes to town. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah. just, like, how this new person coming throws everyone else's position into question, and you have to reshuffle, 
And well, it's just kind of like in Pride and Prejudice when Lydia shows up and she's like, no, Jane, I'm married now. You must go lower. Yes. And it, it would be an interesting like fish out of water. I mean, that's kind of the plot of Crazy Rich Asians, too, when um, the new fiance is elevated, you know, from a, a professorial, not that wealthy background into all of a sudden she's the queen bee of the rich women's set. And it is interesting to have to evaluate all the social reshuffling that goes on. I totally think that could be a, a fascinating. And as we know, Kevin Kwan is a huge Jane Austen yes, fan. Yes, he is. He took a lot of inspiration for Crazy Rich Asians from her Regency society novels. So true. Um, if you read um, one of the later ones, there's a whole list of books that he's trying to make one of the characters read to, to educate them about upper class society. And Trollope is in there. Julian Fellows wrote a book called Snobs that I didn't even realize existed until I read that Kevin Kwan book. Then I read Snobs, which was excellent. You know, so it's it's yeah, no, he totally did. I love when the character of Arabella uh, in Crazy Rich Asians in the book meets the main character whose name is escaping me. And she's like, oh my gosh, Colin Firth was the best Mr. Darcy. Yeah. And here I am reading about these folks in Singapore and I have this cultural touchstone of who's the best Mr. Darcy. And I totally loved that. Anyway, yeah, I remember talking about Emma. <laughs> I remember, well, I remember reading Crazy Rich Asians. And I'm like, this is just Jane Austen in a modern Singapore setting and then um, the version because I read it um, I read it years ago like when it first not to be like oh I read it before it was cool yeah Um, but it was in one of my book clubs so we read it years ago and at the end of the edition I had it had an interview with Kevin Kwan and it was saying you know where did you get your inspiration blah blah and he just name checks like oh I love Jane Austen yeah and and I was thinking as I was reading Jane Austen like this is just like the society I grew up in just in Asia (laughs) He explores the eccentricities of the Asian, you know, middle-aged, the mothers um, of these young kids who are, who who won't eat the $27 noodles, even though they're mega millionaires. You know, they're like, oh, these noodles are so expensive. Let's go down the street. The bargain is much better. And that those little eccentricities of, of those people, he really gets into them just like Austin does, you know, laughing good-naturedly at uh, the foibles of people. So uh, yeah. if you haven't read it, Crazy Rich Asians. Oh, strongly recommend. I mean, the movie is wonderful and delightful <laughs> the and romantic, but I have to say you lose a lot yeah, you because do. a lot of the humor in that trilogy is in the footnotes. Oh, yes. Which are right. amazing. And it's just kind of, usually it's him providing color commentary on things that characters say or his own personal experience at like, say, the school or talking about the little slang terms or oh, yeah, this English yeah uh, the footnotes are really hilarious and it's sort of like one of those things where little slights are noticed like when um astrid does not wear a new dress to arabella's wedding right she just wears her saint that's yeah dress. i can't and sort of like um, people who are wealthier have to be a little bit more careful the messages they transmit towards people who are not wealthy because that can be like an incredible slight. Here's where I transition into the Box Hill scene. Yes, good Emma. job. That was perfectly done. <laughs> Very slick. But we were going to talk about Box Hill, which is interestingly done. I think one of the reasons that Kate Beckinsale is really hard to love as an Emma, what, one of the things about Emma is even though she is flawed and she causes so much havoc, by the end of the movie, you're supposed to love and care about her. 
And that doesn't happen with Kate Beckinsale. And one of the reasons is she has the, the bitchiest little moments. And Box Hill really solidified that for me because we talked about the reason Emma insults Miss Bates in the other adaptations is because they've been needled and they're visibly irritated or sad about not enjoying themselves and having been needled at Box Hill. But Kate Beckinsale does not appear to really be angered or upset at all, even though Mrs. Elton is in fact needling her quite a bit. She just goes in there for the kill with Miss Bates. Right. I do really like how after she says it, though, she laughs and looks around like expecting like, everyone to laugh, else with her, laugh with her and nobody does. And it's so awkward. And I, I really liked her performance of the insult in the aftermath, I thought was really good. She's like, yes, it shall be limited in number. Only three. <laughs> and Frank, in a, in a mark of how he actually is not a great guy, smiles at her through his wine. But the Westons look horrified, well, which by the way, embarrassed for her, though, you can tell Frank like, oh, even yeah. he thinks that, that she went too far. And I really like Miss Bates in this, too. I just want to throw that out there. Oh, I thought I she was her. Really great. I love her. And she's honestly I um, tied in my heart with um, Sophie Thompson because of the excellent, excellent and natural delivery of a chatterbox middle-aged woman. I just thought she was so great. She was so great. Oh, adorable. And and you really feel the slight. And Kevin was on the couch and he was like, well, she was just sort of saying the same thing about herself. And I said, well, yeah, well, it's one of those things where you can say it about yourself, but when someone joins in and like, really it's like, yeah, uh, then it becomes painful. And you of course, I mean? Knightley kind of gives more context when he's, you know, he the whole when you were a girl, it was an honor for her to recognize to recognize you, and now it's the other way, and like you have all the power, yeah. in your relationship. Yep, and um, the 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 chastising, the chastisement, the scolding was fine. He did grab her, you know, arm. It did feel like you do get his uh, upset. His, his visceral sadness that she has done this thing. Um, and I really liked the touch that he has to open the carriage for her and he has to put the foot thingy, the step down for her while he's doing it, showing in that uh, way that he is in a, almost like a elder brother or fatherly position towards her. And she feels very much like a little girl or like somebody helpless when he does that. Yeah. And I, I know, I mean, the servants would have done it for her too, but I, I didn't feel like it had the power of the Jeremy Northam confrontation, which is still my yardstick no, by which I marry by, by yeah. me- measure. She is poor even more so than when she was born. And like his yeah. voice drops on that line. I mean, he's so angry. Uh, the, 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 the visceral power of that, but this was, it was really fine. But then he does badly done badly again, done. but now it's like, Oh, he says oh, this to her on the reg. Yeah. yeah. It does. It, it lost Yeah, on the reg. Yeah. It's lost. The wind is out of its sails. Yeah. She'd like walk across the room and drop something and he'd be like, badly done, Emma, badly uh, done indeed. And it's like, would you just cut me a break? Simmer down. Um, I did like how she turns around after she's gone and her face is sort of streaked with tears. Yeah. Um, so that did show the emotional impact of that. Um, you know what's interesting about this scene in the book? I went back and read it and she makes the insult. You know, it's clear that Miss Bates is hurt, but 
the conversation goes on because right after that is when Mr. Weston comes up with a conundrum. So he, he might've been trying to smooth things over, but you really don't get that sense. You just get the sense that he's playing along and that he hasn't really registered the insult where he comes up with the joke that is not in any of the adaptations, which is um, what two letters of, of the English, you know, alphabet represent perfection. M and A, Emma. And uh, she 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 pretends to be, you know, she finds a great deal of wit in it, even though it's an indifferent piece of wit, because she's trying to be gay and happy and she wants to laugh at something and she wants to move on. And then Knightley says, perfection should not have come too soon, meaning that, uh, Emma, your, your, your perfection has come too soon and or it should not have come so soon. And meaning, Emma, you know, like you are very far from perfection and sort yeah. of needling her that way as well, which is an interesting set of lines that is too bad that it's not represented. I think there's just, in this version, there's just a lack of showing her do anything that isn't selfishly motivated. Yeah. And in the other ones, we she's still a kind person. We just don't really see a lot of that here. And maybe it's, I don't know. I don't know. I just did not. And then all of a sudden, I've been in love with him this whole time. Yeah, like, yeah. What? Yeah. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. I one like that thing, very. Go ahead. Sorry. One other thing that bothered me from the strawberry picking scene to Box Hill, people keep going on and on about how hot it is. Oh. People are running around in like winter jackets. I was just <laughs> like, I think they probably, you know, the weather in England and filming and stuff, they filmed it. It was not that hot, clearly, when they filmed it. <laughs> right. But I mean, at least try to indicate. And that's another reason why, you know, she lashes out. They're hot. They're tired. It has not been as much fun as they thought it would. Well, when they say that would oh, mean. Frank and Jane Fairfax quarreled after Donwell because he wanted to walk home with her. We do get a little scene of them talking to the, you know, each other and she seems mad and she storms off, but it really like doesn't that. seem like it could have been that big of a fight. You know what I mean? Um, so, but one of the things that um, is interesting is that when she does decide to become a governess to Mrs. Smallridge, you almost feel like she's doing it because of Frank's cruelty. Well, I guess you're supposed to feel like that in the book too, but not only that he hasn't responded to her letter or whatever, mm-hmm. but that she's just had enough of, of him and his, his cruelty. And it felt very much like that. Um, what did you think of the fact that Davies kept in the line where Jane Fairfax says, oh, it's like the slave trade, um, different as to the guilt of the parties who carry it on, but as to the level of misery of their victims, I do not know where it lies. Okay, Jane. I think, obviously, this is like when we were, it's like, oh, okay, now these white women are going to talk yeah, like, about oh, like, poor me. slaves, like Mansfield Park, right? Um, I think that it's just supposed to show the depth of her kind of misery at this point. Yeah, but it's also a terribly bad judgment. Oh, yeah. And then Mrs. I almost said Mrs. Hurst. Mrs. Elton. (laughs) I am shocked. Like, I don't imagine what you're talking. And she's, no, I'm talking about being a governess. And then she's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, And it's, 
she's just like Jane's just being kind of dramatic there. And I think it's just supposed, there's nothing about her character that would show her to be a drama queen. It's just supposed to show, I think the depth of her misery at her yes, her passion, the fact that she is passionate and the fact that she is miserable. And, and Davies also says, interestingly, that the Italian love songs that she chooses and, uh, you know, carry a lot more emotional heft and weight. And that when Emma is singing her little song about going to Ireland and, you know, Frank joins in, Mm -hmm. it seems much more emotionally simplistic on Emma's side. Yeah. Let me ask you something. Do you think this version made the attraction and engagement between Frank and Jane more obvious? Yes. Oh my God. You would totally guess even in the beginning. Because I thought so too. Like there's that moment they open the door and they separate really quickly or (laughs) when they're dancing, he shoots her. There's looks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, I, or that when they even when they quarrel, even that yeah, little scene, have a you don't, fight. like you know, they're just playing it cool, like oh, I barely know the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and it, I it actually starts- liked that though. I thought it was a good choice because if it feels like it comes out of left field, then you're just like, what? I thought <laughs> those hints actually made it a lot more interesting. But you're supposed to feel like what? But I guess that does give you something to do as a viewer trying to deduct what's going on because uh, or deduce not deduct, deduce what's going on because in the, because when Frank does come, it, it, it does kind of knock the air out of things a little bit. And you're like, Oh, a new character and I have to care about this now. And so maybe that's interesting. It starts very early too, because when Frank comes to Highbury and Emma is showing him around, she says to him, well, how well did you know Jane Fairfax? And he very obviously eludes the question. He's like, ah, oh, Fords, we have to go into Fords. And um, is immediately as a viewer, you're like, I'm being told something and I need to be on the lookout, which maybe does give you something to do uh, as a viewer. Uh, Jane does the same thing too, right? Oh, I guess some people think he's nice. Well, that uh, is supposed yeah, to really. I mean, clearly stonewalling, right? That, no, well, yeah, I guess so. But, but I, I always took that scene um as allowable and not a clue because we're supposed to be shown there why Emma cannot warm to Jane Fairfax as a friend. And it's because of this ridiculous, like you can't even have a conversation kind of stonewalling. So Um, I think at the, it's just, it's hard because we do know. So it's hard to kind of like (laughs) someone coming into it who didn't know. Yes. Um, I just thought adding those little, hints made it more interesting like because otherwise frank's just a jerk jane's just like boring when you have those hints it's like wait something else might be going on here and so that makes it just a little more interesting oh (laughs) i do just want to point out the oh god it was so cringeworthy i could barely even look at the tv like when you're watching the office and you're like oh god um, when they're at the big harvest festival and Mr. Nutley's like to the best person here, Emma would, and everyone collapsed and to, and I was just like, Oh, oh my God. Yes. You texted I, me a gif of, um, at, at the end of Harry Potter, when everyone's doing the slow clap for the Gryffindors and everyone stands up and it's like, yeah. Oh, but I got to tell you about that scene. It cracked me up the first time I saw it I almost died because when he's doing the post the toast and he says to the woman who's made me so happy and he swings his arm around 
way <laughs> over the top of her head, not to her, but way over the top of her head. I legit thought it was going to be a joke toast, like to my cook or some <laughs> dumb thing. Oh my God. Like just- I did it. Like I did it Easter dinner when you oh, yeah, have that's it. Right. remember that? No, tell everybody what it was. Okay. This, I actually planned this way in it because I'm so horrible. I come up with things like this and I plot them out way in advance. <laughs> so Kristen and Kevin came to Easter dinner at um, my aunt's house. I'm Jewish on my mom's side and uh, my dad's family is Catholic. So we have a big Easter dinner. And it was my dad, my stepmom, my mom, uh, my Kim, my best friend, his husband, Kristen, her husband, Kevin. Were there other people there too? There were a lot a of people of there. People. It was like 10 to 12 people. Yeah. And I, because it's me, of course, I always give a toast like at these big family things. Oh, and Bay was there because we had been together like a year or two years. And I said, <laughs> I said, you know, um, I'm so happy we're all here to share this meal with family and our friends and blah, blah, blah. So I just want to give a special thank you to the person I love the most. And then I looked at Bay. And then I just looked up and went, Kevin, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> it went down well. Kevin absolutely loves that kind of oh humor. Oh, my God. I thought he might. So I came up with this idea, and I just thought it was too hysterical not to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then my mom came up to me afterwards, and she's like, I didn't know where you were going with that. It was going to be awkward. And then when- <laughs> Like, that was the only thing you could say to get out of that because I thought you were just going to insult someone. The joke toast is the way to go. Um, yeah. I'm kind of sad he didn't do the joke toast, but that's not Knightley's bag. Or like spill his drink on her head. Oh my God. Yeah, that's what Kevin thought. I was like, Kevin, watch this. What does this make you think? And he did not go for a joke toast. He was like, I thought he was going to dump his wine all over her. It was just so painful. Miss Emma would have, and it's like, they all hate this bitch. Like, yeah, they, they really do. And then finally, someone's like, yeah, Mr. Knightley. Like, they're <laughs> actually <laughs> That's right. Let's, the guy we like. Yes, to the guy we like. Oh, it's so true. They do hate her. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Yeah, it was just, it was just like that scene. That's the first thing I thought. I'm like, this is just like the scene of at the end of Harry Potter when everyone claps and it's stupid. <laughs> Oh, and then they dance and it's like a curtain call kind of, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone. It's nice that they all dance that the, you know, like, um, and Harriet and Robert Martin, how does Robert Martin know how to do these country dances? Is that something oh, that so you really I thought he was great. He did have a limited screen time, but I thought he did a really nice job. Did you notice that when Jane Fairfax takes to the moors and is like walking around crying, yeah, dumb, um, he, but she passes by him. Uh, looking sad and it's almost like in different ways Emma has sort of caused these two people a lot of grief (laughs) yeah I just that didn't make any sense to me I was just because it cuts from Miss Bates saying she hasn't left her room in like three weeks and then here she is walking around outside (laughs) crying and Mr. Martin is like the fuck I'm just trying to like (laughs) chop some wood here (laughs) Um, I don't know. They, I thought they did a nice job with him when they run into him in the woods the first time. He's carrying a bunch of books. Yeah. So like clearly he's educated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know. He's a very friendly th- looking guy. What did you think? Um, rather than having Harriet and Robert Martin meet again in Fords, what they do to show that to show Harriet has sort of still got feelings for Robert Martin after her refusal 
is they have, and I really like this in the book, um, and it's interesting they included in the movie. They have Emma dropping Harriet off at the Martins' farm to see the mother and the sisters, who are her friends, and then going on a carriage ride and coming back after 15 minutes so that Harriet comes back. I thought it was stupid. We don't see Harriet and Robert Martin interact at all, so we don't get a sense of her feelings. And she also doesn't seem that shaken up when she comes back into the carriage, which she really could have to show her feelings. But we do feel the rudeness of Harriet having stayed for two weeks with these people and, you know, doing all kinds of fun, jokey things like marking their height against the wainscot or whatever. And she comes out and she's like, oh, we all we're feeling like ourselves again right at the end, but then I had to go. And you realize the rudeness that Emma is shoving her into, having having lifted her up into this new life where she's like Emma's pet, she can no longer have her old life, which she really shows Emma's selfishness. Yeah, it's just, and there's a really awkward cut before that too. I forget what the scene is before, but then all of a sudden Emma and Harriet are in a carriage going somewhere and talking about Mr. Knightley's holdings. And I feel like there were a lot of places in this movie where there were deleted scenes. Yeah. I that might have done better with transitions. I thought that was dumb. Like having her run into them in the store felt a lot more, a lot more I organic. Understand what was going on all of a sudden they're together. Why are they going to the Martins? Why did Emma agree to this? Like who, like why? It's just, well, didn't. And in the, the encounter in Ford's Mark, Robert Martin gets to show that he still cares about Harriet. Whereas in this one, you, don't know his feel. I don't know. It, yeah. it was an interesting choice, but honestly, I felt that way too. The first time I was watching it, I, I thought to myself, cause I found it on some fake YouTube. Um, am I getting an abridged version of this? And then I went and bought it on Amazon for the $8 as I was tight fisted about it. And then I realized, no, I, I, I didn't lose scenes, but I really thought, especially with all they cut in the beginning with the courtship riddle and everything, I re- really thought, you know, this is weird. I I feel like I'm missing big chunks of what's going yeah. on here. Um, I can't remember the other specific places, but there were probably two other parts when I was watching it. I made a mental note, like there's something else that was supposed to be here because this is kind of an awkward transition. Um I think we've probably covered a lot of it. I do just want to say that I think one of the reasons why I did really like Elton in this version is when they go pick him up to take him to the Christmas party, he's like, what a lovely night, Christmas party, and it's snowing. And I was like, yes, I feel (laughs) the same way. I love a Christmas party. This Elton guy is okay. You know what they took out there? They took out any mention of Harriet's sore throat and Elton didn't get to pretend to be solicitous about Emma and we didn't get any inkling like, oh no, Emma was wrong. That's the big, you know, sort of plot that's going on yeah, uh, that we're supposed to be thinking dinner, about. Yeah, they just mention it and he doesn't get a chance to be like, oh, so sad. But, you know, a Christmas party is still great and I would rather fall short by two than exceed by two. He did, he did not get to do any of that. It was, it was also weird. There were a lot of markers of what was going on that they just, especially in the beginning, that they just dispensed with, which I just felt was, was a shame. There was comedy there too. And they just took out the comedy. I feel like there was a lot of missing comedy. Yeah, this was I, not a comedy. It's I not. feel like Mr. Woodhouse was a comedic character, was closer to the Mr. Woodhouse of the book than Michael Gambon. And was 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 good. Although now I have a taste for it, I like Michael Gambon's portrayal better. Um, but one thing that Davies did say about Mr. Woodhouse is that Davies sees him as a manipulative old monster um, who who is stunting Emma's personal and even sexual growth. 
because he is so childish and so childlike and is always down on marriage. And she's been exposed to this for pretty much her whole life after Isabella left and Miss, you know, Miss Taylor was around, I guess. But um, Emma's childishness and sort of, um, I don't know, lack of judgment uh, might be seen to stem from having this constantly very childlike person to deal with herself. That's interesting. And I agree as far as it's supported in the novel. I don't think it's really supported in this because we only see her taking care of him in the beginning. Like they play backgammon and she and reassures him in the scene when we first see her and Knightley and he, there's a misunderstanding about which one of them is the troublesome. <laughs> creature. Creature. She's nice to him, but they, we just don't really see them. That's true. We don't we see her. A lot of stuff we don't see. I think that the one that we just watched the miniseries version had more of this um, because, you know, they really make it clear. Emma's never gone anywhere. She hasn't really done anything. And that's because of her dad. And I think and that's his anxiety. Yeah. He's she's yeah. sort of being stabilized anxiety. So, I mean, it's okay for Davies to say that, which is fair. I just don't see any support for it in the movie. I can see that. I think I'm, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. But, any, um, okay. So, uh, let's say sum up. I thought this was good. I wouldn't, you know, with the Pride and Prejudice with Kira Knightley, I always say it's fine if you just want a short Austin fix. I don't even know if I would recommend this one for that. It's just had some issues. I don't know. What do you think? There is something in um, a movie like this where you go back, even though it may be flawed, you go back watching again and again for the chemistry and the romance of the two main characters in, in other movies of the same sort of herb, right? Genre. Um, this one had no hook to bring yeah. me back. I, I was not emotionally invested in Emma or in Emma and Knightley as a couple. And so I don't think I would ever turn it on again for pleasure, for pleasure. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah. Well, you get a great deal of pleasure out of watching the 1995 because at the core and the heart of it, you're invested in the romance and you want these two people to get together. This doesn't have that hook. I agree. Yeah, but you'll watch that Mansfield Park. So I don't know. You'll watch anything. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. You know what my go-to though for like a quick Austin though is always Northanger Abbey. Yes, me too. Yes. Oh, okay, But once again... Uh, you love uh, Felicity Jones. You love Catherine Moreland. You love Tilney, and they have a great chemistry. And you just know oh, I don't give a crap about Catherine Moreland. I'm in it for JJ Field. Oh yeah, well I mean that's what I was saying. Though. He's, yeah, he's no, so I agree. Cute. And then the big kisses at the end. You know, where they like go yeah, into the so head. awkward too, right? Between yeah. Emma and Knight, it was just everything was awkward. I don't know. It's just, and yeah. that proposal scene. Wind blew some hair over into his forehead. And even though he has plenty of hair, it totally looked like a comb over. And I was very distracted. I was like, why didn't they just do another take? You know what I mean? Just comb his hair and do another take. Then it cuts back to him at one point and they've brushed his hair. So I'm I, that. So I'm totally distracted by the hair situation. The oh, first yeah. two times I watched the proposal scene, I didn't even like get into it because of the hair. I think there are things in this that are interesting and choices that are interesting. But as you were saying, like as a movie, we would watch for pleasure as an adaptation. It's kind of a failure. Yeah. Which not is probably why I had never even heard of it until you were uh, like, right. oh, watch Kate Beckinsale. And I was like, the what? Is she a vampire? <laughs> what? Does she wear leather? Like what's happening? You refer, of course, to the fact that the actress is in Underworld. Okay. That movie is amazing. 
I won't hear you say anything again. I did. I've never seen it. I don't mean to put oh, it down. It's okay. It's got Michael Sheen as a werewolf. Love Michael Sheen. And he's fantastic. It's so atmospheric and moody. And it's got Bill Nye as like a vampire elder. And he's so great. And it's, it's stupid and totally disposable. But because it's got these great actors in it. And it's very atmospheric. It's cool. I like it. I won't hear anyone say ill of that film. You know, one of the reasons I, I ever watched the later Twilight movies is because I just love Michael Sheen as the oh, Voltorian guy. <laughs> he's that so are great. Ridiculous, right? But yeah. he's just like, you know what? I'm 100% committed to this. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this werewolf and this super old vampire with the same intensity I played Tony Blair in The Queen, and it's going to be great. And you're just like, yes. The mark of a true actor. And he's great in Good Omens. If you haven't seen Good Omens on Amazon Prime, oh, he's so good. David Tennant is so good. Highly if you recommend. Haven't seen good Omens, what are you even doing with your life? Because I know. I love Jane Austen, but I think Neil Gaiman probably is my favorite author of all time. Yeah, I, uh, she had a Neil Gaiman reading at her wedding. I did it. Jane Austen had a Neil Gaiman reading at her wedding? No, Maggie oh, did. Me. <laughs> talking about you just said she i don't know yeah so we strongly recommend good omens i strongly recommend underworld it is um violent though so if you don't like but it's like cartoonish violence but still if you're not into werewolves fight versus where uh vampires probably not your thing all righty so all of that being said (laughs) emma uh, no would you you like to go to the wheat (gasps) sheet let's go to the wheat sheet I was listening to a very old podcast. I almost never listened to our podcast, but I was on a three-hour car ride, and I was like, let me listen to the Persuasion's Cage Match uh, episode. For some reason, I was in the mood. And I talked in that episode, and then, of course, completely forgot about it, how we need a theme song for the Wheat Sheaf. I guess. I mean, you can't even – sometimes you forget to put our actual theme song yeah, in. Yeah, sorry. If you, um, <laughs> if you ever listen to one of our podcasts and doesn't start with the theme song, it's just me. <laughs> Being a doofus and forgetting to put it in. So every time you hear that, you can be like, womp, womp, Kristen forgot. Maybe we um, could find some kind of like jaunty skipping down the lane. Well, you just always sing it. You always just go like, do, 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 go into the beach. Go into the beach. Yes. Although today, because happy birthday, America, by the way. It's July 4th. Uh, um, do you know what song I've had in my head like for a week? Proud to be an American. Uh, no, it is. <laughs> oh, you're the red, white, and blue. Oh, the funny things you do. America, America. <laughs> America's funniest home videos. Stories from the friend next door. They never talk. You might be a star tonight. So let that camera roll. Oh, you're the red, white, and blue. All the funny things you do. America, America. Oh, this is you. And then, of course, it's some guy getting, like, hit in the crotch. (laughs) For anyone who doesn't know or didn't pick it up, America's Funniest Home Videos. I don't know if it's syndicated in other countries, but it's just home videos of people getting hit in the nuts over and over again. (laughs) And for some reason, like, for me, that happens to be the most patriotic song I know. (laughs) 
you know what? At this <laughs> present moment, I don't know that we deserve anything better than America's Funniest Home Videos yeah, theme song. True. That's true. I consider myself actually to be a very patriotic person. However, there are a lot of people in this country who disagree with what I think America stands for. So, yeah. So we won't get into that. But Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's my present to you, Kristen. It's the America's Funniest Home Videos, which weirdly, I remember a lot of the theme song. That was the highlight of my entire life. Um, <laughs> do you want to explain? Did I do that? Does does any does any listener not understand Stephen Urkel? Oh come on, everyone! I don't care what country you're in. Um, people remember Family Matters, the ABC sitcom. Every people know Urkel, right? How you have to know Urkel. Well, if you don't, just put Stephen Urkel into a, a YouTube search bar. You're about to get educated. Uh, I just assume, I mean, look, people know they're listening to two Americans. So if we happen to make cultural references, people don't get, you know. 90s kids. I, you know, this is always that. Dynamite. What's, that was from. Dynamite is much earlier. It's from the 70s. Anywho. Um, I'm, trying, I'm looking it up now, frantically trying to look up. <laughs> What show? <laughs> like the Jeffersons, maybe? Maybe. Yeah. Good times. Okay. Gonna, All right. Gonna, this has gone way off the rails. Okay. Are What's you going to sing movie? the Jeffersons theme song? Because it's a great theme song. Is that moving on up? Yeah. Moving on up. To Eastside. Finally get a piece of pie. That's all I remember. Um, okay. So, but what's in the wheat sheet, Kirsten? <laughs> um, okay. So, anyway. Annie? From Germany, thank you so much for your note. Um, she wrote to us about how nice it was to hear somebody talking about Jane Austen with modern eyes, but not as just romance stories. And sometimes we really need that. I, I wrote back and I was like, I really need needed this podcast to get me out of this cycle where I get really mad and irritated. And it's really helped me. Like, like Maggie said, like earlier before we started the podcast, she's like, if it, if this ever stops, what are you going to do with your thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> there. I mean, there. Th thank you. I mean, that's basically the thesis statement of our podcast. Yeah. I mean, there, if Annie tells a story about one time a friend was like saying, putting down like women's literature, like it was something embarrassing and we don't truck with that here. And we're here to tell you that's BS. Yep. Um, the next uh, listener we heard from is Victoria. Thank you so much. A new listener who just discovered us. Um, let me just verify where she's from. I believe it is Canada. Yes, it was Canada. Ca it was happy Canada Day belated. It was happy. Oh, yeah, it was happy Canada belated Day. Canada Day. Yes, Very we recently. appreciate it. the North. Um, and uh, Victoria, I know this is not a persuasion episode, but she said something that blew Maggie and I away with her perspective. So let me read it. This is Victoria, I'm quoting. When you were discussing Captain Wentworth rescuing Anne Elliot from her robust little nephew who was climbing all over her, I understood that she was moved not just because it was intimate in terms of touch, but it was also intimate as a family tableau. This could have been her life. That could have been their toddler who was unpersuadable uh, with Papa coming in to rescue Mama, Papa coming in to rescue Mama and then occupying and amusing the little one. So you can imagine the amount of longing and loss she was feeling in that moment. Um, so, 
So yeah, she um, also throws her support behind me. I said Captain Wentworth was a Gryffindor. Captain Wentworth reminds Victoria of Ron Weasley because Ron did not appreciate Hermione until he saw her with Victor Crumb or Cormac McLaggen. Um, and could could Lavender Brown be our Louisa Musgrove? <laughs> <laughs> so brilliant. Oh, brilliant. You guys all know that Krista and I are huge Harry Potter nerds. So any conversation that discusses Austin and Harry Potter in the same breath is worth having as far as I'm concerned. And our final email is from listener Joe. We really appreciate all the emails. Um, actually, a lot of people have been recently discovering the podcast because I made it available through more channels, which was totally on me. I didn't realize that being on Apple did not make us available on every single podcatcher, as they say. Um, so the only one I think you can't get us on now is SoundCloud. So I apologize for that. But if you want to be on SoundCloud, you have to be hosted. Anyway, nobody cares. So <laughs> Joe, Joe um, is English and grew up in the Peak District and actually lived on in a village on the estate of Chatsworth House, which is amazing. Oh my God, how cool is that? If Chatsworth were just like your backyard, you know what I mean? Oh my God. Just to live in such a beautiful place. I know it. Um, and uh, the Chatsworth was Pemberley in the 2005 movie. So if you didn't know what that was, is Chatsworth the one we went to, or was that Blenheim? Uh, you and I, you and Rachel and I went to Blenheim, which okay. is north of Oxford. And um, Rachel and I went to Lime Hall, which was Pemberley in the 1995. And um, Joe said so many kind things and talked a lot about our persuasion episode, which sort of refired his enthusiasm, um, which really was nice. Um, he said, I loved your discussion of the letter. Maggie's passionate advocacy of this moment certainly gave me an appreciation of it that went beyond what I had been feeling on reading it. Uh, his reaction was closer to mine, Kristen's, when I said, like, ugh. Um, but I, Maggie changed me and she changed Joe. So, Maggie, here's to you. Oh, you know, I Your powers of counter. persuasion, unintended. Yeah. So, um, that was amazing. Thank you so much for well, I I just want to thank Joe for casting my ramblings in such an eloquent phrase as passionate advocacy. <laughs> it, makes, it makes me sound a lot more erudite than I think I come than I am. <laughs> Joe said that he first saw the PMP BBC adaptation as a 16-year-old boy. And he loved it, but he couldn't have admitted it to any of his friends. So I want to shout out all out there to all the guys who was exposed to, who were exposed to Austin and your teens, and you loved it. We see you, and we appreciate you, and you are awesome. You. Good for you. You're awesome. Yeah. Uh, I just want to mention that video of that English dude who only wears Regency era clothing oh, yeah. um, has been making the rounds a lot on my social media. So um, we can, I, I don't remember if we've shared, I, th I think someone has shared it to our podcast page, but just, I'm sure that you all have seen this too. It's a gentleman, a modern day gentleman who just likes to wear Regency clothes and he walks around and is living his best life. Yeah. Good for him. Um, I am getting a dress made for Jasna. <gasps> That's right. We have to talk about Jasna. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I'm getting a dress made. No idea what I'm doing. Um, hired a seamstress here in Boise. 
And when I hired her, she was like, oh, my friend just got back from the University of Brighton for a semester where she was learning about Regency costuming. So hopefully I'm in a good spot. Um, but if you have any advice you would like to offer, I'm totally open to it. Yes. And Kristen and I, just by way of some more background, um, we will be attending the Jane Austen Society of North America annual conference, which is in Williamsburg, Virginia, the first weekend of October, which is also where Kristen and I went to college at William and Mary. So this is a nice kind of homecoming um, opportunity for us. So we will be there. We'd love to meet up with people. I think we're thinking of planning a meetup for the Saturday morning breakfast so we don't interfere with anyone's um, programming time. But I, I know we have a couple listeners who are planning yeah. to attend. But if, you, if you have the capability, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So, and it would be great to see people. So you guys should all come. Yeah, definitely drop us a note if you're planning to come. Our email address is firstimpressionspodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and send us a message there. At First Impressions Podcast. And we'll definitely be recording stuff when we're together. All righty. Okay. Well, on that note, I guess we can say we have delighted you long enough. Bye. No, let me do one. Let me do one. To, okay. Tell me if, if you can guess what this is. any of this, by the way. <laughs> what, is it? what is this? Tick, 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 minutes? Yes. That's their whole, that's their thieves. Okay, I'll cut this. I will cut this part from the, well, you know, I can't sing. All right. Make it an outtake. Make it an outtake at the end. I will. I will not. That is a lot more effort than I want to expend.